Hello, listeners. Beyond the Mask, in conjunction with NBC RNA, is pleased to announce that listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how to submit them, go to our website. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. The history of the nurse anesthesia profession suggests that regardless of the challenge or crisis facing it, the right person at the right time with the right message was chosen by the membership to lead. This segment of our podcast is entitled The Courage to Lead. We are pleased to highlight some of these contemporary visionary leaders. We want to express gratitude to all and give encouragement to those that will accept the challenge in the future. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Sharon, welcome back to the virtual studio. I know. I wish I was in the studio with you. Don't you miss me there? I do, but you got to be down at the beach, supposedly doing homework. I mean, I am. who I'm goes to the beach work. to do homework? Beach work. Beach work. I'll tell you what. But, I wish I hey, could have done that back in the day. Oh, my And goodness. drink wine and hang out with the girls, you know. I mean, this sounds like more like fun work. Well, it is that, too. I'm learning a lot. But even more than that, I'm so excited about our next guest. You don't know how long I've worked on this one. Oh, I know. We've been talking about it for a while. And we had a little bit of help from some little outside influence, I believe, here. So, uh, Yeah, well, who tells Sandy Marie that? No. <laughs> uh, you don't for very long, anyway, because she's not going to stop. That's for sure. No. And at least, at least I had the good sense to go and get her to help me in this endeavor. That's right. Well, this is part of our Courage to Lead series and also known as Historical Series. So we are delighted today to have Peggy McFadden with us. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. And Peggy, you know, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and who you are for those that might not know you, maybe the younger folks that listen to our show, and, and then we'll kind of get started from there. Well, how far back do you want me to go? Well, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I was born in a coal mining town. (laughs) Well, you are from Kentucky. I was thinking hillbilly for two days. (laughs) Thank you, Jeremy. I'm from Lexington, Kentucky, 
And I've lived here all my life, except for the 18 months that I went across the Benton Spence Bridge to Cincinnati to anesthesia school. But then I came home on the weekends to work, and there was one instructor by the name of Vera Griner. She teased me unmercifully, unmercifully, that they couldn't take the hillbilly out of me. I had to go home every weekend. Uh, <laughs> you had to get refilled. <laughs> So I went to anesthesia school in Cincinnati, and then later on, I got the notion that I wanted to go to medical school. So I went to pre-med at University of Kentucky and uh, was rejected three times. First time, outright rejection, two times on the alternate list. And finally, one of the professors said to me, I don't think this is what you're supposed to do. Why don't you go do what you're really good at? And I was already a CRNA at the time. Hmm. So I said, okay, I'll just get involved with politics. And I got involved with the, the state association and then progressed into the national association. Well, I know we're going to talk about this, but you weren't president one time. You were actually president two terms. Yes. So you're just a glutton for punishment, Peggy, is what I'm figuring out about you. Well, I put that down as one of my questions for you to ask me. <laughs> Why you were a glutton for punishment? Uh, well, let's kind of talk about, you know, your first term here and, you know, what were some of the things that happened and what were you dealing with at that time? Well, let me take you to uh, actually uh, when I was first elected to the board. It was in 1982 and it was in Boston, the very contentious meeting. You might have gotten it from somebody else. But Patricia Fleming was a native North Carolinian, was coming into office and uh, she wanted to take us in a new direction. And she worked on it. She uh, First thing we did was to restructure the ANA. And then we got into some things that just fell onto us. So as a junior board member, the hillbilly from Kentucky, first thing we dealt with was getting a new executive director. And it was, I thought, what have I gotten myself into here? <laughs> I mean, it was very contentious. And we ultimately did replace the executive director. Within well, then lo and behold, as we're progressing through the years and healthcare, containing healthcare costs and healthcare reform came very much to the forefront. And that's where we started trying to find our place in the future. And, and so I came in, we had already, under Patricia's leadership, we had already started to get Medicare reimbursement. And we can talk about that later and why, but I know a lot's been said about it. But that was like in 82, 83 that we started that. And here now it is 86, and we still don't have direct reimbursement yet. And with the things that were going on, healthcare reform and containing cost, and, and we couldn't get it passed, and things were beginning to look a little bleak. And so when I came in office, we had themes then. The president could name a theme. And my theme then was focus on the future. And I painted out, you know, what we had to do to gain control. And oddly enough, I quoted Winston Churchill. And Gene Blumenreich later told me that he thought that we were doomed until he heard my speech. 
And I just like to say to you what that quote was, because I think it's very important. And I have it right here. So I said, these are my words. In the words of Winston Churchill, we've not journeyed all this way across the centuries, across the oceans, across the mountains, across the prairies, because we're made of sugar candy. You know, I said that, that we were just like the British. We were strong and we were going to survive and we were going to have another hundred years. So that was kind of set the stage, you know, for me. And so we went about trying to formalize our position in anesthesia. The medicine was going about saying that it was the practice of medicine. And Aragon and her wisdom said it's also the practice of nursing. So we adopted the position that when it's the when nurse anesthetists practice anesthesia, it's the practice of nursing. When physicians provide it, it's the practice of medicine. So we documented that in those years. We also dealt with a joint commission who was trying to, uh, they were writing a new standard, a new medical staff standard that identified the licensed independent practitioner. So we were independently licensed practitioners. I think I've got that right. They wanted licensed independent practitioner. We wanted independent licensed practitioner because we were not you know, officially licensed practitioners or independent at that time. So we took a position on that and we went to the Joint Commission and tried to get them to change their standard. We told them, if you don't change your standard, and we had the members support to do this, that we'll just follow, it's got antitrust implications, we'll just follow a lawsuit. And we hired an antitrust attorney. In fact, we hired a couple of them over the time. So we dealt with that and we dealt with issues with the Department of Defense. Also an issue about, they were trying to write a standard saying that all anesthesia had to be supervised by anesthesiologists. And that had certainly not been the case in the military. And we looked very much to the military for our autonomy. So we, we went about fighting that. And eventually we got some change. And with John and Ira, I made several trips to DC with the Department of Defense meeting with the nursing leaders. And then at one time we went to Wilford Hall in Texas and met with the CRNAs. The anesthesiologist there was giving them grief and so we went down and met with them. And so we were, we were pretty involved with the military too at that time. So it was just a matter of, of developing strong positions, being worried about the nursing shortage, being worried about the physician glut, our program closures. You know, people want to say our program closures came about because of direct reimbursement. That wasn't solely the reason. The COA had set up standards for these programs, and some of these programs didn't meet the standards. And so I, I certainly can't recall the numbers, but we had pretty high numbers of programs, and then we had like half the numbers. So it was, we were worried about how to deal with the programs. And it was like, we'll just form our own programs. Well, actually, we couldn't do that, but John and I did even make a visit to the Podiatric Medicine Association to see how they did their programs because their programs weren't structured in hospitals, but we couldn't fit that model. So it was just a lot of standard setting, forming liaisons, 
going to the Joint Commission, reassessing our position on the anesthesia care team, which we could never adopt the anesthesia care team statement. And oddly enough, another member from North Carolina, you may remember Ruth Long. Mm -hmm. Well, Ruth was a good friend at that time, and she came to me about the problem of abuse among our members and convinced me, even took me down to Georgia to a rehab center and convinced me that, you know, we had to put more focus on this. Oh, you mean substance abuse? Substance abuse. So we initiated the peer assistance advisor at Mm -hmm. that time. There was a CRNA by the name of Maggie Olson. And Maggie, as I recall herself, had had a problem. So she was fit for it. So we adopted that. And that's continued until today. And another thing that I'm very proud of was appointed an ad hoc committee on practice. And of course, it's all had our committees, they become committees. And they became actually the practice committee, which became very valuable in my next term, when we'll talk about managed care. So that was kind of setting the framework of some of the things we needed to do. And then what we did do, which was kind of fun, and I'm very proud of this, We threw out the notion of our having our own professional liability company. And Jean reminds me that came about because Peggy was reading the Wall Street Journal and nursing in the anesthesia lounge one day and saw that the physicians were having problems getting liability insurance. And we were insured by the St. Paul. And so we were afraid that we were going to be next. And so I read where the physicians were forming companies offshore. And so I said, well, why can't we do that? And so the board bought into it and John and Jean, our attorney, and Mark Krasmerzik, our finance director, they worked very hard on it, worked with the St. Paul. And we weren't able to purchase, to buy or to set up one at that time because it was going to cost you money, much money. And we needed full member support to do it. Like we only had 25,000 members then, and we have 50,000 members today. And most of the CRNAs we had then were insured the hospital settings. So we couldn't get them to support it, but we were able to work with the St. Paul and start a purchasing group from them. And then eventually a broker that we were working with got into some financial difficulty and we were able to buy that company. And that came about in Sandy's year, I believe. You know, these things you never get done in a year. All right. So it came about, I think, in Sandy's year. And as Anesthesia Plus, and of course today now it's AANA Insurances. And I think it's probably been one of the most valuable services that the association has. And certainly a good source of non-dues revenue. 
Sure. So we've got to thank an article that you read in the lounge while you were at work one day. For I remember the Boston Journal. It just happened to be laying there. And I thought, let, me, let me read this. <laughs> well, that was serendipitous. But I will second what you just said. It's been an amazing source of non-dues revenue for our association. And I would say that it's kept our association afloat many times whenever things were a little bit difficult financially. So listeners, pay attention. You have Peggy McFadden to thank for for this. Now let's go back. I want to ask you a couple of questions about replacing the executive director because I know there's got to be some inside story here that you are privy to. Um, you want dirt. Do I? That, yeah. You want the dirt. <laughs> well, you know, where else are you going to find it? And, you know, minutes of a meeting never reflect the real story or what the backstory is. And so I know there's got to be a story to this. And I think most of the innocent are no longer with us. So you can feel free to share. <laughs> well, I tell you, you're asking someone that was just jumping from the state level to the national level. And so I, I really didn't have a lot of backstory. Mm -hmm. um, but at the Boston meeting, it became known that we had a, a meeting planner by the name of Georgia Greeley. She was from Maine. And she could put on excellent programs, just excellent programs. But she, she was an employee of the ANA. And the executive director got a, a little bit out of joint with that. Mm -hmm. So she uh, managed to fire Georgia. Well, the members of the great hue and cry from the members that they wanted Georgia. Mm -hmm. So then I didn't know all the backstory, but it came, you know, about that this apparently removing that executive director had been in the works for a long time. Mm -hmm. So sitting down at the first meeting, you thought, wow. You know what's what's happening here and we had a consulting company that came in and interviewed all the staff and then reported back to us and we we studied it and studied it and found it came decision time and there was a member from pennsylvania a board member from pennsylvania his name was joe kovalik as soon as we sit down to start discussion joe said i call the motion Oh, snap. Yeah. And the motion was to remove. Ooh. You know, so he did. And uh, after a lot of do, and that's John's favorite word, uh, <laughs> we hired John Gard. Okay. It was, so we hired him in 1983. He, he had been the education director. So we just moved him to the executive director. Now, wasn't he the first male to be yes. president of the AANA? Yes, yes, he was. Interesting. Interesting. So, all right, now let me back up. You talk about you had already started working towards Medicare and reimbursement. Now, Medicare didn't come into being until 1965. So you weren't very far down the road from Medicare coming into being, right? Well, actually, we were trying to get Medicare reimbursement under Part B, mm -hmm. and 
I know a lot has been said and a lot has been written about it, but I wanted to bring it up because one of our colleagues told me this, I talked to you last week, said something about we had gone from Medicare Part B reimbursement for the independent practitioners. And if that's been said to you, I want to correct that because that is not right. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the government was in the mood to contain healthcare costs. So one of the programs that they had set up was prospective payment and diagnosis related groups or PPS, DRGs. And we didn't know where the payment was going to go. Mm -hmm. We just surmised the payment was going to go to the hospitals. And then we didn't know how much of it was going to be for anesthesia. So Aragon and her wisdom, we could never have done all the things we did without Aragon. And she and her wisdom says, you know, it's time. We only had 25,000 members, as I said, but less than 10% of them were independent practitioners. And most of them were in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And they wanted, you know, direct reimbursement, but it wasn't enough to say, okay, let's do this. But now it was enough to say, let's do this. So we started in 83 and um, Patricia sent Dick Ouellette and myself to DC. We were suddenly lobbyists because <laughs> we didn't have a Washington office then. We hired a lobbying firm. We hired White Pine in Burville. And so she sent Dick and I to DC and we went a number of times. Enough that I would have blisters on the bottom of my feet. And what we learned, interesting, and Sharon, you'll appreciate this. When you would go into somebody's office, we could tell immediately whether they wanted to talk to the boy or the girl. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so that, that was kind of fun. And, and so I asked Patricia one day, I said, well, why did you assign me to do this? And if you ever knew Patricia, she had this real dry wit. And she said, well, because you're my region director. I said, okay, uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, you know, so, but it took us until 1986, I was incoming president, and at our fall assembly, I had just gotten word from Deb Hardy, who was one of our lobbyists, that President Reagan had signed the bill, and we had Medicare reimbursement, so that was probably the highlight of, sure. of all my dealings. Sure. You know, it's funny you bring up that about you knew when you got in the office if they wanted to talk to the boy or girl. Juan and I had these discussions whenever I was president and he was president-elect because sometimes we would go into meetings and they would just look at him and I was the president. <laughs> Right. So, you know, I don't think that he really recognized it because as a male, they don't understand that as females do. And then it got to be a joke and we would come out of a meeting and he'd grab me because I know that pissed you off because I wouldn't look at you. So, but, you know, but probably Peggy was, was wise to send one of each up to Washington, D.C., Oh, yeah. I mean, Patricia was wise to do that. But she had a lot of, lot, a lot of wisdom. She was, she's just really an icon as far as I'm concerned, and how she moved this association into a different direction. 
You know, I remember the first time she ever spoke to me and I hadn't been out of anesthesia school too awfully long, but I had produced the video, The Best Kept Secret in Healthcare. And I was in the exhibit hall at the AANA meeting and we were in Opryland Hotel in Tennessee. And she came up to me and said, you have put North Carolina back on the map within the AANA with this video. And of course, I couldn't speak because I was awestruck because I knew who she was, but that she actually took the time to talk to me. She was like a movie star to me, you know. Yeah. yeah. So you finished your first term 86 to 87 and you decided to come back in in 92. All right, here we go. This was what I was talking about. Why, Peggy? Well, I'll, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> when I ran for office the first time, I was opposed by past president, Josephine Nickel. And Josephine Nickel withdrew. And so I was, I won by default. And so when it, the second time, the nominating committee called me. They, you know, this current generation thinks they have trouble filling the ballot. We had trouble filling the ballot too then. And so the nominating committee called me and said, would you consider running again? And I said, well, I will, but I'll tell you, I won't withdraw. I won't campaign, but I won't withdraw. And it was hilarious when we got, you know, I started that thing where you had to give a little speech in DC when you're running for office. Oh, so we have you to thank for that too. (laughs) So you have me to thank for that. And so I had to give this speech and I was running for the second time. And so I gave my speech for Christine instead of me. (laughs) You know, it brought down the house. And of course I was elected because of name recognition, you know, but, but I did serve and would I do it again? That's another question I was going to have you ask. Would I do it again? Probably not. And Richard says the same thing. He probably would not again. You mean and for the second term? For the second term. We're the only two, you know. And when Janice Isler threw her hat in the ring, you know, a couple of years ago, I contacted her and I said, Janice, are you really sure you want to do this? <laughs> Because it's not easy. And it's not easy mostly because you didn't grow up with these board members. They don't know you. Right. And you don't know where your votes are. Ah, good point. You know, and, it's, and you've got to learn all the things that, that they've been doing. And for a three-year span, you know, that was a lot. So it wasn't easy. And then I think another thing about it, too, is... Uh, you know where the, all the skeletons are. And I really pushed hard. I probably pushed people too hard because getting close to the end of my term, they said, the members said, never again. And that's why you've never seen another another person run a second term, except Janice. And, you know, what? how Janice got defeated, I, I don't know the answer to that. But I did caution her. There's probably something she didn't want to do anyway. Yeah. Those are, yeah. those are good points. So so what else happened under your second term that's kind of notable, Peggy? Under the second term, the big issue 
Well, probably one of the reasons why the people hated me. And, <laughs> and I was always just like we were so successful with the insurance company. I was always looking for non-dues revenue. And so in one of those years between the time I had worked for years as a local tenant, and I saw where there was a need to put some quality into the practice and also probably a great place for non-dues revenue. And the locum tenants came out in full force, mm. full force against me. And I had to withdraw. You know, I had, think I had presented that in my year as president-elect because I felt like I started the second term as president under this cloud that there were a lot of people who didn't want me to be there, you know, but that was one part of it. The other part and really the major issue in my second term was the single anesthesia payment. And I wrote an article about that in, in May of that year. And what was going on was, you know, that the TEFRA conditions of participation were implemented in 1983. And now we had been all this time, like 10 years, under this the conditions of payment. And CMS had finally wised up that they were paying a lot of money, a lot of money they didn't want to pay. And with, when they were in this mood for healthcare cost containment anyway, they were looking at anesthesia because they were paying the anesthesia care team as much is 140% for a one to two ratio. And so they came in and said, we're not going to pay that anymore. We're going to pay 100%. You know, and so we had to position ourselves in how we were going to deal with this, how we were going to address it. And, and my board decided that, well, let's go in with, we want the payment based on who's actually providing the service not on the number of providers. And that we also wanted equity and payment for the supervision of our nurse anesthesia students. And we also wanted the elimination of TEFRA or the conditions of payment. We felt it was, they were costly to the public. People didn't adhere to them anyway. And it was damaging to us as a professional practice. So, of course, uh, ASA got a little angry with us, as you can imagine. They, they could never understand what we were doing. And they said, okay, we're not going to talk to you anymore. And so they withdrew their uh, discussion, their liaison with us. And then they went about the country trying to undermine us and undermine us with their own employees, the CRNA employees. So some of the CRNAs whether under duress or what, bought into it. And so they started contacting us that they wanted the medical direction payment. So it, um, it was a big issue for that year. And you don't hear anything about the single payment issue, but that is why we have today, CMS did decide at the time that, okay, we're going to go with 120% but eventually we're going to 100% and we're going to reduce it over a four-year period. So we're going to reduce it to 100%, but we're going to split it 
50 goes to the CRNA and 50 goes to the anesthesiologist. So I thought that we had lost in that. But John felt like that was really a win-win for us. And that's still the the system that we have today, 100%, but it's split 50-50. I couldn't get them to go with payment for the service, get the providers out there. We couldn't get them to eliminate TEFRA. I think that TEFRA has been the most damaging thing to us as a profession. In fact, um, I read my written comments in my report from that year, but I can remember my not written comments to the members at the meeting, and they still ring in my ears about how I felt like TEFRA had ruined us as a profession and that we had to get rid of them. And it was like, then I went out and had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> yeah. You know, it would be interesting if you would share those comments with Nancy Marie, because we're getting ready to tape a podcast on TEFRA. And I have heard about TEFRA being a problem for our profession for a very, very long time. And so it would be interesting for Nancy to have those comments that you made because clearly they were prophetic. Well, Sometimes we don't know. Nancy and I have discussed this several times and we're certainly on the same wavelength. In fact, when years after that, when we when the association spent $13 million trying to remove supervision and Nancy was involved in that, she and Scott Foster, it was like, we really should have gone after removing TEFRA and they didn't. And so we're certainly on the same wavelength. In fact, it's interesting, later on, you're gonna ask me about my hobby. And one of the first horses that I had, a foal that I bought off the courthouse steps, I named him Tefra. You know, so it's, <laughs> it's been our, our nemesis, I think, as far as the profession. Now that we, as I see it today, and I may see it all wrong, because I'm not as involved as I was, but it's like today we have half of our members who don't care about the fact that they're medically corrected. That's okay. I just give me my check and let me leave at three o'clock. Yeah. You know, yeah. where it was, our feelings are quite different then. Peggy, what would you do differently if you could do it all over again? As I said, uh, I pushed hard, you know, <laughs> the second term. If I had to do over it again, I probably would have been kinder. I think my perception of myself was that I was uh, pushing hard. As Sharon can tell you, you only have a year to get things done. Right. And the first year went so quickly. And we had so much going on that I was pushing, pushing, pushing. And I probably would have been kinder. Yeah. Any regrets other than that? I have no regrets. I don't think I have any regrets. Would I do a second term? Probably not. Yeah. And as I said earlier, Richard and I have had discussions about this. We both said we probably wouldn't have done it again had we known you know, how hard it was going to be. Yeah. But, but you might have been the right person at the right time. Stuff, I have no regrets. It, um, it gave me a great life. So what do you think as you've, you've done this twice, you've been a CRNA, all the stuff you've accomplished, what do you think the most valuable leadership lessons that, that you might want to share with our listeners are? I think that 
be careful in the decisions you make because uh, they matter. They often have consequences that you don't even think about. Like I, I gave you the example of the locum tenens. I had an example when I was also president of the state association where I didn't really look at all sides of the issue. So I would say probably um, look at all sides of the issue that your personal views don't really matter. It's what's good for the greater good. And the second thing I probably do, I've always tried to bring along younger people. I think, in fact, I was on a, you know, one of these Zoom meetings with Kentucky State presidents recently. And one of them brought up that how I had tried to bring along the younger generation. Sandra Tunicek is my greatest prize. Um, but I think that if we don't bring in new blood, then we just grow stale, you know, and die. Or else, I'll add one more thing to that. We get people that get themselves involved that have their own interest in mind, not the interest of the association and of the profession. Peggy, what do you tell those those new CRNAs that are out there right now about where we are in this in this world and, and where CRNAs fit in and what should they be doing right now? Well, I think one of the things that would be extremely helpful, and I discovered this trying to do some homework for this podcast, is um, go back and read the messages, the president's messages. Not only mine, you know, all the others too, and just see what was going on at the time. What we have today wasn't just handed to you on a platter. We worked hard for it. You know, so go back and read those things that we were doing during the times. They were hard times. And then the other thing that I, I kind of use a metaphor for is that if you're going to get on this merry-go-round, you know, of the profession and all the politics that goes with it, mm -hmm. then you're obligated to go for the brass ring. You know, and I did. I knew when I was running for the board, that I was going to be the president. I was going to do every, I was going for the press ring. You know, so, um, and I didn't step on people to get there. I just put forth what I believed and what I thought was good for the association. And some people like there's there was a board member, Jim Claffey and I were great friends. And he was due to come up in the order of things to run against me and he wouldn't run against me. And of course, I, I won by default. But I would say the big thing is if you're gonna get involved in this and do get involved in it because it, it has a lot of rewards, a lot of fun, there's a payback and you owe it to yourself to do it. Yeah, and I've heard Sandy say, and even even Sharon probably copying that, but you know, you're, you're standing on the shoulders of giants, people people that came before you and, and dug those wells that you're drinking from today. And that's really a reoccurring theme that, that we hear from a lot of folks on this series. Yeah. And we love the historical series because some of the things that you're talking about are the same things we're dealing with now. So history repeats itself and you need to know what has happened before 
And that's what we find so valuable about this historical series. Isn't that right, Jeremy? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's such a learning experience to hear what was going on at that time. And, you know, Sandy comes in the studio and we, we talk about some of the things that were happening back in the days when she was president, Dick was president. And some of the same issues we're dealing with today, we were dealing with back then. I mean, it's just interesting for me as quasi an outsider to see how the industry's progressed, but yet a lot of parts have stayed the same as well. So, Well, you know, Jeremy, I, I think that that's a problem as you deal with the younger generation now. They don't care about history, you know, and I think that that's part of the problem. They don't care. A lot of things that they want to propose, we've been there. We've done that. We know what works and what doesn't. You know, but but they don't care about hearing it from us. Yeah, yeah. So Peggy, you know, if there was anything else you could have done, what do you think that might have been? You mean as far as association or life? Uh, you know, another profession. You know, life. You know, what what would you have done that? Well, Sharon's going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> I would have run for public office. Ah, okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you would have been excellent at it, Peggy. What the a missed was, opportunity. The problem was, it was just like me trying to get in medical school. When I couldn't get in medical school, they didn't take women. Yeah. Especially, they didn't take old women that already had a profession. Yeah, when you said that, so, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just kind of like, I don't know. Uh, when I got out of A&A, there still weren't many women in politics. Sure. I, mean, I think what's happening now is just awesome. Well, even now, Peggy... Only 24% of all seats in legislatures and governance are women, but yet we represent 50% of the population. I can't even imagine what those numbers would have been like back then. Now, flip that coin. If you would have been an old white man, you would have got in. (laughs) I have to tell you a funny story about that. You know, I don't know how how, well you know Patrick Downing. Very well, yes. Patrick always had a nickname for everybody. Like he called Patricia Magnolia. Mm-hmm. Well, my nickname was Senator. Ah, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Uh-huh. That is interesting. Speaking of that, tell us about maybe a hobby or something that you're interested in, Peggy. Well, there was an executive director, one that was replaced when I came on board, that often said the past presidents should just go out to pasture. <laughs> and so I, I took it literally. Of course, being from Kentucky and being from Lexington, which is the uh, horse capital of the world, I got involved with horses. And I was working a solo practice right outside of Lexington, right in the middle of horse country. And I was only an anesthetist there. And right next to the hospital was a, um, a thoroughbred farm. And I came in one day and I told the operating room nurse, I said, you know, I'd really like to know how to ride a horse. Now, mind you, I was 53 years old. Old people shouldn't ride horses. <laughs> so there was a small university in that community. And so the next day when I went to work, the nurse had put on my anesthesia machine an application for Midway University. So I called Midway and I said, do you take old people? 
All right, now, 53 is not old, Peggy. They said, oh, we take anybody. So I went over and uh, started taking riding lessons. And then the next thing I knew, I owned a horse. And then the next thing I knew, I was given a horse off the racetrack, a thoroughbred. And then the next thing I knew, I was in the breeding business. Oh, goodness. Is that the money? Thought, That's the money pit business, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so my firstborn, I thought, well, I can't, I can't give him up. So I've never raced a horse. I think I'll, I'll get in racing. So I got into the racing end, too. And uh, it was fun. I met a lot of uh, great people. Uh, a lot of, I, I say met because I'm, I'm out now. But uh, I met a lot of great people that didn't care that I'd ever given an anesthetic, really didn't care that I ever held a professional office. I could wear my blue jeans and shit kickers, and, <laughs> and it was okay. It was casual, and it's been a lot of fun. That's great. But it was expensive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like the wine business, you know, kind of the same thing. So. Right. <laughs> Well, Peggy, as we kind of wrap this one up and conclude, first, we want to thank you for your time and, and obviously the talents that you brought to the CRNA community as a whole. And anything you'd like to conclude on before we wrap up? I, I guess I would say that, you know, anesthesia has really been good to me. It really gave me a good life. I met a lot of great people, got to travel the world. So as we would say in the horse business, it's been a great ride. <laughs> Wow. That's that's good. Well, that's Peggy, good. I was brand new in this profession when you were having your second term. And, you know, you were, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a ball of fi fire. And everybody knew that if you got something in your mind, it was happening. And it's people like you that move our profession forward. And people don't hate you, but people disagree with everybody. Geez, you know, people disagreed with me during my presidency, and I'm sure that include you, but that didn't mean that you hated me. We just had differences of opinion, but I've always respected you, and I've always thought you were a phenomenal leader, and I, for one, appreciate everything you did for this profession because I did have to stand on people's shoulders like yours later on. And I appreciate it. And I know there are thousands of CRNAs that appreciate everything you've done and the service to our profession. Well, Sharon, uh, I really appreciate that. And, and I'll remind myself of it when I'm sitting in the rocking chair on the nursing home. So, <laughs> Well, I can't see you doing that. But if it happens, you do that. But I can't, you'll be rolling that nursing home. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to say one more thing, though. I don't know if this has happened to you, but there's been some past presidents like you said, I was pretty strong. I was pretty vocal. I ticked off the doctors as well as a lot of my CRNAs. It, it had its price. There was a time when I couldn't find a job. Oh, well, we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> so that was why, uh, that's why I did that year as a locum tenant. You know, I was between jobs. I couldn't find a job. I even had a job at the university. I knew the hours I was going to work, how much money I was going to make, and I got this call that I didn't have a job. Oh, yeah. That happened to me, too. 
So I said, well, how come? How come this happened? You know, and they said, well, we, we're just not going to do it. I thought, well, I'll find out. And eventually I did find out. And one of the CRNAs on the staff had done a number on me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't get the job. I uh, traveled for a year. And I love li- living in Lexington. And so a friend of mine who had a job here, she called and she says, we're looking for somebody. And we'll hire you if you don't talk politics. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I took share. the job and finished out my career there. And, uh, and I didn't talk politics. <laughs> Wow. Sharon, that sounds very familiar. Yes, it does. Well, Peggy, thank you so much again. Thank you for being on today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, guys. And we want to uh, to thank our listeners as well for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show, uh, the single best way to help our show grow is to tell others because Sharon, as you know, we're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the U.S. right now, but our goal is... To be in the top 10. That's right. So please tell people about us. Tell others. And always, if you listen to our show, leave us a review, but only if it's positive. There's enough negativity in this world. Until next time. It's a wrap. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode 
to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA history series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA personal finance series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.